0: Welcome to the Flood Church Sermon Podcast, where we bring you sermons from our teaching team at Flood Church, Lilongwe, Malawi. For more information, you can go to floodchurch.com. I should introduce myself to you. My name is Renata. Let's look at our passage this morning, which is Ruth chapter 1, a very familiar story. In fact, we already did the first 18 verses as we explored sadness. And the anger section comes right at the end of the chapter, but I want us to, uh, to share the passage together so we can really understand the context. So as we go through this story, I want to answer the question, how do I obey God when I am angry? By providing some insight from the text. So would you stand with me this morning as we read the passage, which is Ruth chapter 1, 1 to 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother in law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. <coughs> Look, said Naomi. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. May God bless the reading of his word, and please be seated. <coughs> so let's, let's go through the story, and I want to just give you some context and background so that we understand well together. So at this time in Israel, there is no king. There are only the judges ruling the land, and so this family, Elimelech, Ruth, Oh, sorry, Naomi and their two sons left Israel, the land of God's promise when a famine hit the land so they decide to take a journey of about 80 kilometers to the country of Moab obviously this is outside of Israel a foreign land where a foreign god was worshipped and the abominations of Baal were practiced I don't have time to share with you what those are today and especially there are lots of children around so we won't get into that but let's suffice it to say that they were horrific. As we look at the context of Naomi's story, let's just take note of this right at the beginning. Their their desire to avoid the famine, to avoid the pain, to avoid the difficulty, actually put them into a place of disobedience. And one writer suggests it's disobeying the spirit of God's law and holding little value to the blessings of the land of promise. This land that their ancestors had journeyed to, had escaped Egypt from, had walked and walked and walked to get to, they decided to leave when it became a bit difficult. So, really, their choice to leave Israel is actually a choice to leave the land of God's promise. However, they reached Moab, they made a new life, the sons grew, they married Moabite women, which again is a, a contrast to what the scriptures would encourage. The marriage of Israelite men to foreign women would be discouraged. But nevertheless, they got married to these foreign women, Orpah and Ruth. (coughs) So ten years goes by, and they manage to have escaped this terrible famine. And then in a short period of time, Naomi actually loses the three most important men in her life. Let's read verse 6 again. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law returned, prepared to return home from there. Everything she had worked so hard to keep safe, she had lost. So 10 years have passed since they've left Israel, and Naomi decides to return home, back to her home village. So they start off on the road that will take them back to Judah. They packed everything I can't imagine packing for a journey like that with my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law. So just put it into context in your own mind of, of what that would mean. The husbands are dead, and it's the three ladies who are not actually relatives. Some of you could say a hearty amen to that, but you're staying quiet. <laughs> <laughs> They're prepared to go, but then suddenly something within Naomi changes. And instead of continuing home, she tells them no, wait, we have to stop. So what, what is it within her that changed, or what's something that has sort of been stirring within her heart for this length of time? But as we read this passage, I'd like us to consider that there actually is a deep-seated anger within Naomi. She left her home. She tried to get safe. She went for a new opportunity, and she ended up losing her husband and her two sons. Now, leaving Moab with two daughters-in-law who are a constant living reminder of her dead children perhaps it was more than she could bear so they stop on the road and she really insists no you can't come with me I don't think her words are without meaning look at verse 8 may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands does she does she actually wish them well she points to their grief to their loss to the joy that they once shared, but now is no longer. There's no mention within the passage of children, so perhaps these ladies had no children. The marriages might have been quite young. Two young girls had not been married for very long, now suddenly widowed. But she goes on to wish them rest in the home of another husband. I think that's quite an unusual statement. In some ways, we could consider that she's essentially cutting them off from her. The indication is once you're married again, you won't be my relative. So let's pray that that happens. Let's pray that the Lord gives you that so that I, I can continue with my own grief. So an emotional scene ensues. The girls insist, no, we'll come with you. We'll follow you to Judah. We'll start a new life there. And Naomi, her emotion is continuing to be stirred up. And she reminds them of the impossibility of ever getting married again, of ever bearing another child. It will not happen. It cannot happen. Even if I did get pregnant tonight, would you even wait? Their offer of kindness is rejected by her assumption that their situation, her situation, is worse than theirs. How many of us know someone like that? You tell them about your pain, your loss, your experience, and somehow, for some reason, Theirs is always worse, definitely harder, certainly more expensive, and infinitely more difficult than yours. I had a few friends like that, the one I can think of, you know, I would complain, oh, this baby has been waking up every two hours through the night. Oh, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, thank you. (laughs) This baby's been waking up every two hours. I'm so exhausted. Well, my baby wakes up every one hour, so I know it's just really difficult, but somehow you just have to get through it. And you can share these burdens with these friends, and no matter what you say to them, they come back to you to say, well, actually, mine is worse. So it's true, definitely, that Naomi has lost everything. But so have Orpah and Ruth. Their futures, guaranteed by their husbands, are now gone. The scripture again doesn't mention children. The likelihood of marrying is not impossible, though still not certain. Still, out of loyalty to their mother in laws, they insist, let us spend our lives with you. And at her insistence, at Naomi's insistence, Orpah decides, no, I'll go back to my home. But Ruth, she's not convinced, and she keeps clinging to Naomi. And she insists that she will follow her and speaks these well-known words. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So some of us here today are married. Most of us have attended a lot of weddings. Others are looking for such an opportunity. But these verses are read are spoken between a widowed daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. But we read them all the time at weddings, don't we? Between a husband and wife. You know, Jeff and I read these verses to each other at our wedding. So, I, you know, I'm certainly not exempt for taking that scripture in a different way, but I want to advocate if you're going to read it at your wedding it should be you with your mother-in-law. <laughs> Share those words of life with one another. And see how that might actually change your relationship. That was for free. <laughs> so Ruth makes her pledge to Naomi and they continue on this journey to Bethlehem. So I want you to picture for a moment a widowed woman once once rich with sons and a husband now returning to her home village with very little and only one foreign pagan childless daughter-in-law left. Scholars estimate that at this time Bethlehem had a population of somewhere between 300 and but less than 1,000. So not, not a huge city, not a metropolis, but upon their arrival, the whole city is stirred. The whole town is surprised to see her. Can it be her after all these years? And, Their excited response is met with Naomi's anger. She's been gone for 10 years, and this is how she responds to her village. She tells them, do not call me by this name, which means pleasant, because it's going to remind her of happy times, of the person she used to be, of everything she lost. Instead, she asks for this new name called Mara, which means bitter. And the blame for that anger and bitterness she places directly on God. Instead of saying, it was me, I left Israel, I left the land of promise, I went to a foreign land where false gods are worshipped, I allowed my sons to marry these pagan girls. She says, very surely, it is his fault my life is bitter. I left here full, full of life, full of sons, full of marriage, and now he has brought me back empty. Imagine her saying those words while Ruth is right in her presence. I've got nothing left when here's your daughter-in-law who's left everything behind in order to be with you. So let's consider these words for a moment. And I think there are probably some people here who might feel the same way. He led me to that job and then took it away. God gave me that husband, but now the marriage has ended. I had that opportunity for education, but he didn't provide the fees. I was given a wife, but now we cannot conceive a child. Naomi goes on to say, she can't be called by that name, Pleasant, because the Lord has actually testified against her and has brought misfortune upon her. One scholar states that underlying these words is the deep conviction, very rooted in the Hebrew mind, that all must go well with those who are righteous. And misfortune is a design of Jehovah's wrath. So that's how Naomi returned to her homeland. She came home empty to her home village with a foreign, childless daughter-in-law and every seed of anger planted in her heart because all the things she thought she deserved, everything she thought she could keep safe, has been totally lost, and the entire town has gathered to witness it. So instead of pleasant, she would prefer to be known as bitter. So I would suggest this morning that our lesson comes not out of her obedience, but out of her disobedience. It's in this disobedience that we can glean from this morning, that we can take some words of life. So then, how do I obey God when I am angry? Well, number one, by releasing the lies that I have been told or I have told to myself. We must ask ourselves, what are the lies that I have believed that might be contributing to my anger or bitterness? Now, as you know, I usually like to share stories from my life with you and I have another story about Jeff and I asked him again as I always do is it okay if I share this and uh, he said oh that happened a million years ago go ahead he's teaching 11 plus today so he's not even here to to blush (laughs) so uh, this year we've been married for 14 years but we dated for six years before that everyone say ah. No, it was terrible. <laughs> uh, and we started dating as young teenagers. You know, there's a lot of emotions, a lot of hormones, a lot of, you know, decisions that you're making when your ba- your brain is not yet, uh, formerly or for, uh, finally, developed. So Jeff had gone to a secondary school where they did different types of metal work. So he was making a rose out of copper. We were not dating. He was dating someone else in our youth group. <gasps> and he told uh, but we were very good friends. Very good platonic friends. And he told me, I'm planning to make this rose. It's for someone very special. I'm working hard on it. I'm putting my own sweat and effort into this rose. And he's dating my friend. Her name was Stacy. I can she's not here today. <laughs> And I was like, oh, that's nice. And everything he was saying was like, the rose was going to be for Stacy. He was dating Stacy. He was not dating me. And we used to, you know, the way teenagers can spend too long talking on the phone, sometimes they're just listening to each other breathe. (sighs) Are you still there? (sighs) Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. (laughs) So he would explain this to me over the phone as he was busy making this rose. So then, you know, one thing leads to another and Jeff and Stacy break up. Yes. <laughs> and then we start dating after that. I can't really remember the timeline, but we and then we're dating for a, a period of time and he tells me I have something very special to give you. So what is it? The rose. Some say love a flower. No. Not in this case. So he presents this rose to me and I was angry. I said, "You made this rose when you were dating Stacy. You told me all about it. And now here you are trying to give me this second-hand rose? I don't think so." And he was very upset. <laughs> because I had rejected his efforts and his, the time he had put into this and, you know, the emotions he had spent while he was carefully fashioning this beautiful copper rose. And so, it was wintertime in Canada. He left my house, he walked home to his house, and he had to pass through a park, and behind the park was a grocery store. So he took that rose, and it, it landed on top of the roof of the grocery store. Terrible. I was heartbroken. He was heartbroken. I was angry. He was sad. And he explained to me later that I never actually told you I was making that for Stacy. I was planning all that time to make it for the lady, for the woman that I wanted to marry. So, you know, I had, I had been telling this lie to myself that the rose is for Stacy. how dare he give it to me, now he's trying to present it to me, what am I supposed to do with, you know, sloppy second rose? (laughs) So, the long story is we traipsed through the snow to try to find that rose and we never found it. And he went back to school and he fashioned a new one and it's somewhere in a box in Canada right now. But sometimes we believe these lies, and one of the lies that Naomi believed was that another location would be easier. She thought, we, d- we can avoid stress, we can avoid the, the, the terror of this famine if we go somewhere else. By effectively removing themselves from God's covenant promise of this land, they removed themselves from a place of blessing, and they p- put themselves directly in the path, thank you, of false gods and foreign worship. The next one, the lie that their problems would be smaller somewhere else. Are those coming up? Yeah, great. They exchanged the problem of famine for one of a foreign land filled with idol worshipers and those who did not know the name of Jehovah. And ironically, in order to avoid famine, they actually encountered death. Next, the lie that worship of another god is acceptable for someone who has once worshipped Yahweh. So Naomi is actually urging Ruth and Orpah, go back to your gods. They will welcome you, which indicates they're now worshipping Yahweh. So imagine an Israelite urging someone to worship a false god. One scholar says she thought of earthly things alone, and at that time the Jews were almost universally growing lax in their worship. So her, having spent 10 years among the Moabites, thought it of little consequence whether they adhered to the religion of their fathers, to which they had been accustomed to, or whether they came to the Jewish religion. Sometimes we believe the lie that it's okay to give our devotion to something other than the true God. We look for answers and truth and assurance in other places, in other things, in other people. I have a friend who's a pastor in Blantyre, and he's explaining to me that when a baby came for its dedication, it had the the bead and the string tied around its stomach. So sometimes we would like to look for one answer, but we want to cover all the bases, right? Make sure those gods are appeased. Make sure this god is appeased. Then hopefully something well will work out. Lastly, the lie that God doesn't love me if I am difficult situations. The lie that God doesn't love me if I am in difficult situations. This is a lie. Let's read 20 and 21 again. Don't call me my Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. Rooted deep within ancient Hebrew thought was the concept that all must go well with those who are righteous. And misfortune is certainly a sign of Jehovah's wrath. Does that sound familiar? I was chatting with a coworker and I made, I made a joke of something that was, could happen that was negative. I can't really remember what. She said, no, that will never happen. God loves you. And I thought, well, yeah, he loves me, but does that mean nothing bad is ever going to happen in my life or to me or in my circumstance? We must understand this is not necessarily a prescriptive text. Naomi expresses her anger with God, but it doesn't mean that the loss she has experienced comes from him. So you have to be encouraged, my friends. Misfortune or difficulty or problems is not a sign of God's wrath or worse, his lack of love for you. He has loved you with an everlasting love, and if you ever doubt, if you ever question at all within yourself or through your pain, never, ever, ever believe for one millisecond that God doesn't love you. The full proof of his love is found on the cross. It's got nothing to do with your situation, your ability, your circumstance, your blessing, your curses, your obedience, your disobedience. He loves you. So along with rejecting these lies, we also have to embrace truth. Number two, embracing truth. In order to be obedient to God when you are angry, ask, what is the truth? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Ask him to show you what is true. We so often quote the verse that says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you. But what comes before that verse? You shall continue in my word, then you will be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It's when we continue in his word and truly become his disciples that we can know what truth is and therefore be set free. So ask yourself, what is the truth about my emotions? What is the truth about this situation? What is the truth about God? feel very comfortable to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you because that's what he is here for. Looking at John 14, Jesus promises he will ask the Father to give us another advocate who is the Spirit of truth, who will be with us forever. That means he's right here. It means he's right there when you are surrounded by lies, by false voices, by echoes that wish your very ending. In your anger... Embrace truth. In her anger, Naomi struggled to actually embrace the truth about her situation. Instead, she pointed to God and said with an angry fist, you did this. You have undone me. You have caused this lie, this loss. So yes, we have lies to reject, but we have truth that we also need to embrace. Moving on, number three, accepting responsibility. When you are angry it's very easy to put the blame somewhere else, isn't it? That famine, that dead husband, those dead sons, even God himself. When I was a teenager, I have an aunt and an uncle, and my aunt kept asking my uncle to buy her a Suburban, which is a big, strong, heavy, super-duty truck. And my uncle bought her a Volkswagen Rabbit, which is kind of like a Passo, like it's a, it's a really good car, but it's not as strong and big and heavy. And she got into a car accident. And she said, this is all your fault. If you had bought me that Suburban like I asked, I never would have been in this car accident. And my uncle said, well, (laughs) one way that we can be disobedient through our anger is to deny the responsibility. So therefore, in order to be obedient, let's accept responsibility and ask ourselves, how am I responsible for my current situation? What did I do to get myself here? Did I do anything to get myself here? What can I change? But also, what is unchangeable? And the fact is, sometimes anger is misplaced blame, and other times, it is it is a righteous thing. All of us have had things happen to us that we have no responsibility for, and it's okay to be angry about those. But we can still accept responsibility that I cannot change it, therefore I must process and deal with it. It is our own natural human reaction to blame someone else in order to make ourselves feel better and to feel safe. We have four children. They are four, six, eight, and ten. And the ten-year-old loves blaming everyone for his problems. If you hadn't done this, then I wouldn't be like this. If, if you weren't late for your thing, now I wouldn't be late for my... And he, he goes on and on and on every day. And it's amazing how God will get you to disciple someone like that. Because <laughs> I'm not really sure how to get that out of him other than long times of prayer. <laughs> Naomi blamed God for her circumstance, and she also seemed unwilling to realize, hey, I had a part to play. We made the decision to leave. We went to a foreign land. We left the land of God's promise. Next, I can be obedient to God when I'm angry by number four, allowing others to share the burden. In her anger, Naomi thought, it's better for me to be alone, to be away from those who wanted to help her, even from those who have actually experienced the very same situation. Who could understand her pain more than these two daughters-in-law? They've had the very same loss. So let us ask ourselves, who can I share this situation with? Who is a safe person to share this with? Look for someone who can help you. Uh, There are a lot of uh, oversight team members who are willing to sit with you, listen to you, care for you, pray with you. Thank you, Agri, for having all of us stand up this morning. Now you can know those are people who you can share your life with. There are plenty of prayer counselors that have been trained and approved by the church as well to help you. Next, how can I participate in the community of faith? Israel was more than a physical location. It was an entire community. Just like Flood Church is more than this building, it's an entire community. We see the way that these women rally to hear Naomi is back, the one who was away has come home. When you're angry, the temptation is to isolate yourself, to keep your distance, to avoid getting hurt again, to avoid that person or that place. But friends, it's here in our community of faith that we can allow others to share the burden that we're carrying. Next, am I active in church? Am I active in our faith community? It's actually in serving that you pour yourself out and you become more like Christ. He uses our service to make us like him, and also to soften our hearts before him. You might say, I'm angry, so I don't think I can do children's ministry. I've also heard this one. I'm waiting until my heart is right. (laughs) I have to tell you, our wicked hearts will never be ready. They'll never be right for service to our perfect king, but it's he who makes you ready and makes you righteous. It's a kingdom principle that as we pour out, we are then filled. By emptying ourselves, he brings new life. When we give to others, he'll care for us. We came to Flood Church um, in 2014, and uh, having left Canada, we were I was on staff at our church, Jeff was on the board, we were very active, very involved, had been there for a number of years. And we came to a church full of strangers, and we thought, What are we going to do, or how are we going to to get involved? What can we do to help? And it it was a big process for us as we were thinking about it and considering how is our discipleship being modeled for our own children to see our participation in church. How are we going to do that here? We have our ministry that's like the rest of the week, but what are we going to do within our faith community? And uh, I'll never forget this. It was February. I had never heard these words together in church. But sex and chocolate night was happening on Valentine's Day. And they called for anyone who could bake something to bring something chocolate to the church and uh, to participate in that night. So I was like, I can do that. I can bake something chocolate. So I made this chocolate brownie pie, which is delicious and dro- I had to drop it off at ABC, and I, you know, there's too many gates at that community. I was at the wrong gate trying to find someone to give this to. That was uh, my first experience of having an opportunity to give and to serve in such a small way, but also in a meaningful way. So I want to encourage you, there, there's something that you can do, I know there is. Join the hospitality team. Harry's back there. He always needs people. Join the children's ministry. But the last point I have here, you can also join a growth group. Yeah. Yeah. If you host or lead a growth group, please put your hand up. Hosts and leaders all across this place today. They are here. If you have questions about growth group, any one of them can answer for you. We also have that uh, beautiful wall back there that explains where they meet, who hosts, and who leads. At Flood, this is the primary way we express membership, through our growth groups. This is how we are known. It's how we are carried, how we are growing, how we are accountable, how we are loved, how we are filled, how we are relieved of the burden we can't carry ourselves. I always plug growth groups when I preach, as you know. So. It's a great way for you to get to be part of our community of faith. Next, number five, how can I obey God when I'm angry? By remembering God's promises. Now remember, at this point in Israel's history, they had grown very lax in their worship. There was no king to lead them in spiritual devotion. In fact, Judges 21, 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this statement came a short time after the book of Ruth. So this tone of complacency was already starting. So rather than recalling God's promises of kindness, faithfulness, covenant, love, Naomi actually allows her anger to overtake and essentially blind her to God's promises. So ask yourself, what does God's word say about me? And if you don't know, you need to find out. As well, what does God's word say about him? Dig into the richness of scripture, because we have to know it if we're going to be set free by it. But when we're anger, when we're angry, filled with anger, it's easy to forget those truths. Just start by reading His word. Well, I can't read His word while I'm angry. Well, why not? Like people wrote it while they were angry. Inspira- inspired, God breathed word. If they can write it, surely you can read it. It's not the emotion that is negative, remember, but how you express that emotion, that can either be positive or negative. Be reminded of his promises while you read the scripture. Lately, I've really enjoyed listening to my Bible on my phone. Maybe it's that monotone voice (laughs) or that imperceptible accent of the reader. But I've just found it a very soothing way to take in God's word while I'm driving, especially. Lastly, and finally, number six, we can be obedient to God when we were angry by recognizing God's sovereignty. Look at verse 1 compared with verse 22. Naomi left Israel during a famine, and she returned to it during a harvest. Not just any harvest. The barley harvest was the first harvest of the whole season, and it would normally fall around the last week of April, just where we, where we are right now. God had restored plenty to his people, and here we have these tired, worn-out grieving, fatigued travelers who have arrived not only to witness it but to also receive their share of this blessing. If you go on in the book of Ruth, you'll see that Naomi and Ruth actually depend on this harvest, and it was through the harvesting that they were ultimately saved from the horror of their situation. Let's read verse 22 again. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. But I want to put it into context for you, and I hope it's going to come up properly. Okay, just wait there, Julius. We're going to just read it in a context. So Naomi, widowed and childless, returned from Moab, that foreign country outside of God's promise where children are sacrificed to idols, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, the childless pagan wife of her dead son, arriving in Bethlehem, the city of famine, as the barley harvest was beginning. Friends, we don't know our ending. We don't know where God is going to take us, and I know that certainly today things may look bleak. It may look worse than even the most eloquent writer could portray but I want to urge you that even in your most angry moments when you feel there's nothing left that you can do to control this rage within you, remember, remember, remember that God is sovereign. He is faithful. He does not forget his promises. He knows the ending from the beginning. I don't think Naomi could possibly anticipate what God would do before the end of this book, and it's only four chapters long. By the end of the book, Ruth is married to one of Naomi's relatives, and they've been given a new family. Ruth has a child, which means now the family and their land have assurance, things are secure, they are safe, it's wonderful. But look even further ahead. Let's turn in our Bibles to Micah 5, verse 2. That's closer toward the middle of your Bible. (laughs) But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Then, looking back at Ruth 1, verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. This scripture from Micah 5 is actually prophesied 300 years after the book of Ruth is written. 300 years later, the prophet gives this word that in all, of all the cities on the earth, Bethlehem will be chosen as the birthplace of Christ himself. Looking at, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' lineage is so perfectly laid out, so clear for us. We see in 1 verse 5, Ruth's name listed within the lineage of Christ. Yet this is a thousand years after the book of Ruth. Could Naomi have known that a thousand years later, Christ would be born in her very own home village that she ran from and despised to return to? We need to remember that God is sovereign and we don't know what He's going to do. Our lives are but a whisper, but a breath of smoke. Even in the midst of your anger, it's possible to be obedient to Him. It is possible. The storms that you are facing now are difficult, and I don't ask you to take them lightly, and neither does God take them lightly. But I ask you to consider them in light of his sovereignty. He is faithful. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. As I conclude, I want you to look at Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5. We looked at this passage very early in this series. It was part of one of the growth group studies. In this psalm, David, he cries out to God and he begs for an answer. He's distressed and he prays for relief, but let's read these two verses. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust the Lord. So here David is absolutely overwhelmed with despair, but we hear a reassurance. Tremble. 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 It's okay to have the emotional experience. It's okay to be angry. Your emotions are a gift from God. His image is expressed through them. They allow you to have this uniquely human experience of highs and lows of life, but they can also be tools where we can use them to grow closer to God. The key is that in, in that anger, in that tremble, you're still living in obedience. Trusting God. David writes, tremble and do not sin, just as in Ephesians 4, we hear, in your anger, sin not. Thanks for listening to the Flood Church Sermon Podcast. Please send us your feedback by commenting below or by emailing floodlilongwe at gmail.com.